All right. Well, we're back. We're back. We're back. We're back. And we're going to turn over to Jeremiah 18. If you don't have a Bible and you want a Bible, we'll get you one. Raise your hand. Raise your hand if you don't have a Bible. We'll get you one. Okay. Everybody's got a Bible. Good. And we're going to turn to Jeremiah chapter 18. Jeremiah chapter 18. Now, I don't know. I don't see him around here. There might be some on the back table. Uh, I have my chicken scratch little chart for you. And if you have this chicken scratch, I can't even talk. Yeah, if you have that chart, it might make things a little easier, but if not, that's okay too. You'll be along. We're in the book of Jeremiah, and we know that Jeremiah was one who prophesied during these kings' times of ruling over the southern kingdom of Judah. Okay, and if you need that story, well, we got to go back a couple hundred years, but uh, we won't do that tonight. But the nation of Israel split into two kingdoms, Israel and Judah. Israel's the northern kingdom. In 722 B.C., the Assyrians came and tore out and took away to Assyria the northern kingdom. But in 586 B.C., Judah was taken out by another country called Babylon or another world power called Babylon. That's 586 B.C. I always say the Reynolds make fun of me at their house. I know they do it because they told me, how can you understand the Bible unless you understand 586 B.C.? I don't think you can. And they always say it and make fun. It's really funny. I love it. That's my love language, by the way. But anyway, uh, so they, they do that. So 586 B.C., remember that number because that's really kind of what the Old Testament sort of, that's one of the stars in the sky that you can orient yourself when you're reading the Old Testament. It's 722 B.C. when the northern kingdom was taken out by a, a world power called Assyria, and then 586 B.C., so what's that, 140-some-odd years later, Babylon takes out the southern kingdom. And we're in the part of, uh, or we're in the calendar years, uh, so to speak, of around 640 B.C., all the way to 586 B.C., that's Jeremiah. He's prophesying during the kings who reigned at the time that Babylon is threatening. And that's important for this whole story. And God has told the southern kingdom, Judah, I'm going to unleash judgment against you. A country from the north, Babylon, is going to come and break you to pieces. That's what the Lord has said. And we're going to examine a little bit of that here tonight. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to read chapter 18 of the book of Jeremiah. And then we'll, we'll talk about it. We're going to come face to face with one of the attributes of God tonight. In Esther, we came face to face with the providence of God. God providing for his people. And we saw in Esther, I, I always just can't, can't believe it. God provided to, uh, for his people through the insomnia of a king who was against them. And, and God provided through the choice 
of that king choosing a certain book off his bookshelf during insomnia. (laughs) And so that's for another day, but that's the providence of God. And tonight we're going to come face to face with the sovereignty of God. So let's read it. Chapter 18 of the book of Jeremiah, it's in the Old Testament, starting in verse 1. Here's the word of the Lord. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will cause you to hear my words. Then I went down to the potter's house, and there he was, making something at the wheel. And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter, So he made it again into another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to make. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, O house of Israel, how can I not do with you as this potter, says the Lord? Uh, Look, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. The instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up, to pull down, and to destroy it. If that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. And the instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plant it, if it does evil in my sight so that it does not obey my voice, then I will relent concerning the good with which I said I would benefit it. Verse 11, Now therefore, speak to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am fashioning a disaster and devising a plan against you. Return now, everyone, from his evil way and make your ways and your doings good. Verse 12, And they said, Can you believe this? Listen to what they said. That is hopeless. So we will walk according to our own plans, and we will every one obey the dictates of his evil heart. Therefore, thus says the Lord, ask now among the Gentiles who has heard such things. The virgin of Israel has done a very horrible thing. Will a man leave the snow water of Lebanon, which comes from the rock of the field, with a cloud flowing water, or excuse me, the cold flowing waters be forsaken for strange waters? Because my people have forgotten me. They have burned incense to worthless idols, and they have caused themselves to stumble in their ways from the ancient paths to walk in pathways and not on a highway. To make their land desolate and a perpetual hissing, everyone who passes by it will be astonished and shake his head. I will scatter them as with an east wind before the enemy. I will show them the back and not the face in the day of their calamity. Then they said, verse 18... Come and let us devise plans against Jeremiah. Isn't that interesting? Now we're going to shoot the messenger. For the law shall not perish from the priest, nor counsel from the wise, nor the word from the prophet. Come and let us attack him with the tongue, and let us not give heed to any of his words. Now watch this. Give heed to me, O Lord, and listen to the voice of those who contend with me. It's as if now Jeremiah is praying an imprecatory prayer. Who, who here has heard of an imprecatory psalm? Okay, good. Good, because you taught one. That's good. Do you know that? That's good. Uh, 
Give heed to me, O Lord, and listen to the voice of those who contend with me. Shall evil be repaid for good? For they have dug a pit for my life. Remember that I stood before you to speak good for them, to turn away your wrath from them. Therefore, watch this, deliver up their children to the famine and pour out their blood by the force of their sword. Let their wives become widows and bereaved of their children. Let their men be put to death, their young men be slain by the sword in battle. Let a cry be heard from their houses. When you bring a troop suddenly upon them, for they have dug a pit to take me, and hidden snares for my feet. Yet, Lord, you know all their counsel, which is against me to slay me. Provide no atonement for their iniquity, nor blot out their sin from your sight. But let them be overthrown before you. Deal thus with them in the time of your anger. Well, we're going to try and do 18 and 19. We'll get to that in a minute. But we're at a very familiar piece of Scripture. And most of the people who read chapter 18, 1 through 7, really enjoy it. And they enjoy it because what they think this means, and I think it does mean this in some ways, is that you're in the hands of the potter and the potter is forging you and shaping you. And that probably is true to some extent. We'll talk about that in a minute. But that's not what this is initially talking about, folks. I want to take you to a verse in Romans 11. Go with me there. Go to Romans 11. I'm so excited I've forgotten where Romans is. We're talking about Israel's rejection of the Lord here, or Paul is. How about this? Verse 22. This isn't something you stick up on the refrigerator much, or I do. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God. On those who fell, severity, but toward you, goodness, if you continue in his goodness. Otherwise, you will also be cut off. There's other verses that you could look at that maybe, well, you do know them, I'm sure. In 1 Corinthians 5, uh, uh, 11, it says, we know what it means to fear the Lord. In Hebrews 10, 31, it says, it's a fearful thing to uh, fall into the hands of the living God. Let that one sit there for a minute. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Hebrews 12, 29, God is a consuming fire. So let's examine this for a minute. There is this thing in God that's severe. We've read it. And the severity of God is with the goodness of God, and they're not mutually exclusive. Do you see that? There's an attribute of God that's severe. There's an attribute of God that's good. There's an attribute of God that's just or justice, love. You get what I'm saying here? And God always and only acts according to his attributes perfectly. Got it? Now, why did I take you there? Because, see, in the context of Jeremiah 18, it's a scary thing to find yourself on the potter's wheel. Because the Bible says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now let's 
Break this down a little bit. The word, verse 1, which came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Remember, Jeremiah is like a scrapbook of his different ministry events during this time that he's ministering to Judah as Babylon is threatening. Got it? So it's not always in chronological order, but here now, the Lord is going to ask him to do something. I got a fly up here bothering me. Uh, something that is interesting here. He's going to do kind of a three-act drama here in the next three chapters. And in the first chapter, what the Lord says is, hey, hey, Jeremiah, I want you to get up out of your house and I want you to go down to the potter's house. It seems like it must be that he knows and understands where this place is. And he's going to go down to the potter's house, and there I'm going to cause you to hear some words. God's going to prophesy, listen to this, to Jeremiah at the potter's wheel or at the potter's house. In an archaeological companion to the book of Jeremiah, a guy named Philip J. King describes what these potter's shops were like. He says this, associated with a potter's workshop were the potter's wheel, that's the first thing, a space for treading, they had to actually like ride a bike to get the wheel to turn, treading, a space to do that, a kiln, something to fire the pottery with, right, to make it strong, etc., a field where they actually stored the vessels, then this is his words, not mine, a dump for the discards, do you get that? A dump for the things that they're going to discard, and a source for water, either a cistern or a stream. And another guy comments within this book, the potters were living and working near the clay sources and where water was available. They needed a lot of space. And apparently, listen, this Jeremiah knew where this particular potter was. He said, go down to the potter's house, the Lord says, and I'm going to cause you to hear my words. Just, you know, I, I get it, and we'll talk about this in prayer. But let's not just put God in a box, folks. I mean, God's not just going to talk to you in your prayer closet. I mean, have you, in your own personal walk with the Lord, had the Lord speak to you at a place, in a time, and say something or indicate something to you, and you're just like, huh? You know, maybe, uh, uh, you, you know, at a game or at a, uh, at a meeting or, or something. God is not in a box. And here, he says, go down to the potter's house, and I'm going to actually reveal myself to you, and I'm going to give you the words that I want you to tell to this southern nation. So I go down to the potter's house, obedience, and there he was making something at the wheel. The potter's making something at the wheel. And the vessel that he made of clay, look at this, was marred. There was an imperfection. Something got into the clay and the wetness. By the way, folks, what does the Bible tell us in Genesis 2, what we're made out of? We're made out of the dust. What does, uh, where does the Bible tell us in Genesis 3 where we're going to return? To the dust. But here, there's, clay was marred in the hand of the potter. And this is really interesting. Now think about this. Who's in charge at the potter's house over the clay? The potter is. 
And there's no way, no how, that the pottery would ever say, I want you to make me this. You get it? And there's no way, no how, that the pot, or the pottery would ever say to the potter, I want to go there, and I want to look like this, and I want to have that, and I want to do this. No, what the, pot, the pottery does is it's fashioned by the hands of the potter. As it's, watch this, watch this, watch this. As it's going round and round and round and round, and the only person or the only one in charge of whether the merry-go-round of pottery stops is the potter himself. And here in the hands, or excuse me, in the context of southern Israel or Judah, it's good but severe to be on the wheel. Here's what I mean. So he made it again into another vessel as it seemed good to the potter to make. You see, it was totally up to the potter what to do with that pottery. He, there was some imperfection in it, didn't like the imperfection. He just, boom, popped it down somewhere else, dis, you know, you know, made a mess of what he was currently making, but he broke it down. By the way, folks, in 1 Corinthians 3, what did the Bible call us? A field that God plants in. And you have to be plowed up in order to grow some beautiful stuff. But We'll talk about that in a minute. Here, the potter throws it on the ground or throws it somewhere else and throws that and gets it back on the wheel to make it into something else. You know what? If the pottery was alive, you know what I bet the pottery was saying? What are you doing? What are you? I was fine just like I was. Why, why are you throwing me over there and refashioning me? I'm fine the way I am. But watch this. In 8, or in 5, it says, Then the word of the Lord came to me, and he said, Hey, listen, house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter? In other words, listen, you folks, nation. I can do anything I want, God says, not me. I can do anything I want with you as a nation because I made you. I mean, think about how ridiculous it is. Folks, 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 think about how ridiculous it is for the pottery to tell the potter what it's going to be and how it's going to look and what it's going to act like. We've got it totally backwards. Check out chapter 1 of Jeremiah, verse 10. I want you to see what Jeremiah's job was or is this whole time that he's been prophesying. Chapter 1, verse 10. See... I have this day set you over the nations and over the kingdoms. What are you to do, uh, uh, Jeremiah? To root out and to pull down, to destroy and to throw down, to build and to plant. That's the job of Jeremiah as God gives him the words to say. Isn't that interesting? And here, God takes him and takes him over to the potter's house and he gives him this. You know, I, I can imagine Jeremiah going, yeah, I... God, I've seen this before. What's, I mean, I've been here a million times. What, what are you trying to teach me? And here the Lord says, Oh, house of Israel, can, I can do with you 
as this potter, says the Lord. Look, as the clay is in the potter's hands, so are you, Judah, Israel, in my hand, O house of Israel. The instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up, to pull down and destroy it, if that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, look at this, I will relent even if it's a nation, if the people will come together and re- uh, uh, turn back to God in their ways, I'll relent. I'll see it and I'll th- respond to it. I'll, I'll relent, God says, of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. And in the instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plant it, if it does evil in my sight so that it does not obey my voice, then I will relent concerning the good with which I said I would benefit it. Now, by the way, you probably go, go over to the companion uh, uh, prophet Isaiah. Go over to Isaiah 29. Over to Isaiah 29. Look in verse 16, Isaiah 29. Isaiah has been talking to God about these things. And God brings him to this place. Surely you have things turned around. Shall the potter be esteemed as the clay? For shall the thing made say of, or shall the thing made say of him who made it, he didn't make me? Or shall the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding? Do you, do you understand what Isaiah is saying there? That's what the people were saying. You don't get it, God. You don't understand me. I want to do this and be this and be that, and you keep throwing me on the other wheel and trying to reform me and get me to go that way. But I want to do this. And the people are saying, God, you got it backwards. Let me ask you something. If you redid your whole house and you invited Jan and I to come over for a night just to relax and hang out and play games or something, and we stood in your hallway and we said, you know what, that decor right there is really crappy. You really need to get this over here and turn that this way and do this. What would you do in about five minutes? You'd be like, get out of here, man. What are you talking about? And that's exactly what the people of Judah are doing. On a grander scale, they're telling the Lord who they should be and what they should be and all that sort of thing. Turn now to Isaiah 46, or excuse me, 45. Go there. Isaiah 45, verse 9. Woe to him who strives with his maker. Let the potsherd strive with the potsherds of the earth. Shall the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or shall your handiwork say he has no hands? Woe to him who says to his father, what are you begetting? Or the woman, what have you brought forth? In other words, the Bible has just brought us face to face, folks, with the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God. So let's look at that for a minute. What is the sovereignty of God? Jerry Bridges, a guy I like to read uh, a lot, says the providence of God is his constant care. We talked about that. Providence. But there's this absolute rule over all creation 
for his own glory and the good of his people. Sovereignty is the absolute rule over people. But look at this. For his own glory and for the good of his people. How about this? There's another uh, description. uh, Says this. Sovereignty is used to describe the fact that God is the supreme ruler of everything. God created the world, all that's in it. He sustains the created order. He guides the affairs of nations, humans. Uh, He providentially then interacts with all that takes place, and he works for the good of the world, and finally will bring all things to a satisfactory conclusion because, look at this, he is God. He has the absolute right to work his will. Sometimes sovereignty is misunderstood to mean that God forces his will on people and that we're not free to choose. That's false. God's sovereignty includes the free choice of human beings. What makes God's sovereignty effective is that his will, it ultimately be done, sometimes along with, sometimes in spite of, our free choices. Now, what I want you to say here is that you and I and we, listen to this now, belong to God. Whether you think it or not, your life is not your own. God created you out of the dust. He can do as he pleases with your life and my life. Now, before you get all freaked out about that, because I can hear the questions coming. Wow, that sounds sort of heavy-handed and ogre-ish. Then you don't understand all of the attributes of God. Because God only always acts according to his attributes. And what's one of his attributes? Justice. God is perfectly just and judge. What's another one of his attributes? He's loving. He's good. He's kind. But he's also severe. And he only acts in his sovereignty, watch this, according to who he is. Because when people start to read, God owns my life or is the creator of my life and can do with it what they will, they kind of shirk back from that. But the sovereignty of God is a good thing. It's a really good thing. It's a truth, Ray Pritchard writes, that touches all of life. It's meant to be digested so that it becomes a part of our very being. Let's say this. It's a humbling doctrine, he says. Isn't it a humbling doctrine? Because, look, folks, weren't you taught when you were a kid? I was taught this. You've got to be the captain of your own ship. You've got to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Don't be a, 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 a bother to anyone. Be self-reliant and self-dependent. And be real strong and don't, don't be weak. And, and, and then... And then When you start to come face-to-face with the doctrine of sovereignty, it's a humbling doctrine because our lives are in the hands of God. So it's a humbling doctrine. But it's also, as Ray Pritchard says, an exalting doctrine. Why? Because it gives us a huge God, an unbelievably big God that can handle just in this room all of us. And all of our choices and still be sovereign. It's a mysterious doctrine. Because here, it brings us face to face with the problem of evil and free will. And you always ask me those questions, and those are hard questions. 
Christians have debated these forever. God is sovereign, and you are at the same time responsible for every choice you make. That's what the Bible teaches. I can't speak tonight. Ray Pritchard says this, it's a clarifying doctrine, and so I'm going to hit on a couple of you right here, because I hear it in the fellowship sometimes. See, it's a clarifying doctrine because it teaches us there's no such thing as luck. There's no such thing as chance or fate or coincidence. There is no such thing as Murphy's Law, folks. There isn't. When we start saying things like Murphy's Law or I can't catch a break, watch it. Because you're speaking against the sovereignty of God. Go back to the potter's wheel. Maybe there's something in your consistency, and he's thrown you down this way to remake you. And you're complaining and saying, what about my luck? What about this? Watch it. There's another thing it is. It's an empowering doctrine, Ray Pritchard said. If you believe God is sovereign, no mere human could ever intimidate you. Oh, you'll respect authority, but you're not going to cringe and uh, uh, recoil back from it. It's going to give you courage, like David against Goliath in the Valley of Elah. I came, he says, I come to you in the name of God of Israel. Here's what another writer has said. God is free to do all that he wills. God is able to do all that he wills. God cannot be successfully opposed. God rules and reigns. He's Lord of heaven. He's His throne is a symbol of his sovereignty. God's sovereignty extends over all things. He's sovereign over human life, over the minutest details of life. He's sovereign in the life and salvation of the people, of the suffering of believers, over world history, over all gods, over demonic forces, and we could keep going on and on and on. But here... Jeremiah forces us to come nationally face-to-face with sovereignty, but also personally, as I said before, we're like the clay in that we come from the dust. So he says, doesn't he? Listen to this. He tells them, if you just would repent and come back and follow me, I'll, I'll relent, but I'd even bring some good things to you, but if you did evil, then I would have to bring it to you. But look in verse 11. Speak to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and say, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I'm fashioning a disaster and devising a plan against you. Return now, everyone, from his evil way and make your ways and your doings good. You would listen to this, and you know what you would think would happen in the next sentence? You'd think, well, my goodness. This sounds amazingly severe. It's coming right from the Lord. He's given us clear plans. We've come face to face with the sovereignty of God. He's the potter. We're the clay. We don't tell him what to do. He fashions us in any way he wants. And look at this. And they say, that's hopeless. They wouldn't respond to the message of God. And why wouldn't they respond? Look down in verse 15. It tells you because they had forgotten God and burned incense to worthless idols. They had forgotten God. Now, folks, I don't mean to sound like an old, curmudgeonly old man. 
But our nation has forgotten God. This is as sure as anything describing us. I mean, if you're out and about in the world of commerce or business or out in society and someone makes a dirty joke and you say, what are you doing making that joke? I can't believe, and and you stand up and say something for righteousness and they say, well, why would you care? What do you say? And you say, listen, if you would say, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, these people will look at you like you're an absolute alien. They don't even understand it. How could you do that? Or if you say, listen, I'm waiting to have sex with my wife until we get married. We're uh, engaged now. And you say that at a Christmas party downtown, they're going to go, what? It's, It's as if they've never even heard of it. Or, you know, integrity in business or whatever. I'm just making up a few things. Folks, we have totally forgotten God. We're saying things like, (laughs) it's okay to not follow the way in which you've set up family life, God. Love is love. And love is love. God's love is God's love. But what he says is what's true and right, not what we say. In all those ways, we're like the clay telling the potter coming into the house and redecorating because we know better than you, Lord. And there's no way. And there's no way. He says it's just silly. Who has heard of such things, he says. The Virgin of Israel has done this horrible thing? Will a man leave the clear, beautiful, up-in-the-mountain water that comes from the rock of the field and come down and drink, you know, muddy water or something? Or would the cold, flowing waters be forsaken for weird, strange, gross water? No. That's what we do when we, the clay, whether as a nation or as a person, tell him what we're going to do. We settle, look, you still get water, but you get the junky water. The water that's going to have the bacteria and the mud and the junk in it. That's what you get. When God's got the clear, pure water for you, the abundant life, we settle for the sewage life and think it's wonderful. We tell him what we're going to do. They've burned incense, it says, and they've caused themselves to stumble from the ancient paths to walk in the ways and not on a highway. Now, that's a very interesting reference to Isaiah 35, verse 8, which talks about the highway of holiness. God's got this way that he wants you and I and we as Christians to walk, and he's told you right here that the safest and best way is to walk in his ways. It's a high way to walk. But if you want to do your own thing, you're going to get off on all the off-ramps of the highway. You're going to run into major problems. It's like when I won't listen to Jan when she gives me the directions. Okay, well, whatever. You're going to run into it, man. 
to make their land desolate in a perpetual hissing. Everyone who passed by it is going to be astonished and shake his head. I will scatter them as with an east wind before the enemy. I'm going to show them the back and not the face. Can you believe that? That's what the Lord says. I'm not even going to look at them. I'm going to turn my back when the Babylonians come, and I'm not even going to pay attention. That's what's going to happen. It's going to be a day of calamity. Well, then they say, come and let us devise plans against Jeremiah. Isn't this fascinating? Did you notice? uh, Did you notice that he's come with some other people? Uh, He's come with some of the leaders here, the the priests and those sorts of things to go to the potter's house, and they now say, come and let us devise plans. You know, one mark, we talked about this. This goes really along with 1 Corinthians 3. It's interesting. One of the marks of a mature Christian is they're going to learn to expect opposition at all corners or all all moves. You're going to learn to expect opposition, and you're going to expect it because the Bible says you're not wrestling against flesh and blood, but against spiritual powers and uh, uh, principalities, etc. And there's going to be opposition. If you're not being opposed, you're probably not doing much effective for the Lord. But when you do get opposed, they come, look at this, they're not now just against God, they're coming against the messenger, folks. And they say, let's devise plans for him. Because, you know, we, we still have priests. The law's not going to perish from the priests, nor counsel for the wise, nor the word from the prophet. We still got other prophets. In fact, in one of the earlier chapters, do you remember what they were, the other teachers and prophets and priests were saying? They were going, ah, oh, don't listen to Jeremiah. It's all peace. It's all going to be fine. Oh my gosh, it's like today. We got, uh, you know, and I, listen. We got tons of churches that'll just tell you about the grace of God all the time, the grace of God all the time, the love of God all the time. And I love grace, and you love grace, and we love love. But the Bible says there's more than that to God. And one of the things he is, is he's just, and he's going to come back, and he's going to judge, and we need to be prepared for that. Not just peace, peace all the time. Well, come and let us devise plans in. Come and let us attack him with the tongue, and let us not give heed to any of his words. Give heed to me, O Lord. Here comes the imprecatory prayer. And listen to the voice of those who contend. Shall evil be repaid? Remember that I stood before you to speak good for them, to turn away your wrath. Deliver up their children to the famine and pour out their blood by the force of the sword. Let their wives become widows and bereaved of their children. Let their men be put to death, etc. Let a cry be heard from their houses when you bring a troop suddenly upon them. They've dug a pit to take me and hidden snares for my feet. Yet, Lord, you know all their counsel, which is against me to slay me. Provide no atonement for their iniquity, nor blot out their sin from your sight. It's an imprecatory psalm. It's, uh, or, uh, psalm. it's an imprecatory prayer. What he's doing here is he's pleading the justice and uh, uh, the protection and, 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 and the, uh, uh, the wrath of God in an appropriate way most of times, although Jeremiah, quite frankly, right here, seems like he's crossed over the line when he's talking about delivering up their children. But there's these imprecatory psalms, and now there's this imprecatory prayer here from Jeremiah in which they're not really into vindictiveness, but they're into the justice of the Lord. 
See, you know this, right? There's unrighteous and righteous anger, right? Do you know it's okay to be angry about some things? We're to hate what God hates. Like abortion, folks. Come on now. Come on. If you're being intellectually honest, come on. Another little body. And God stands up for the oppressed and the downtrodden and the ones who are vulnerable. And yet, we haven't stood up for them. We're to hate evil. But then there's unrighteous anger. That's when we want to get back and strike and take matters into our own hands and make the penalty ourselves or you know, give the penalty ourselves and let, and let, uh, instead of leaving it to God. We want to seek to destroy the offender in the, uh, the whole process of this unrighteous anger. When that righteous anger just sort of turns the matter over to God and seeks to help the ones who have been offended. That's our goal. And here, it seems like this imprecatory prayer that Jeremiah makes is sort of in that way. He understands that God is perfectly just. And you say, well, wait a minute, this has been really rough. Well, then read the next chapter. Because it's put in here to show you how God acts in conformity with all of his attributes. And here it goes. Thus says the Lord, verse 1, go and get a potter's earthen flask. You know what he's told him to do? Go back to the potter's house. (laughs) We got more lessons. Go back to the potter's house. And as one commentator has put it, this this chapter is sort of the story of Jeremiah's trip to the dump. Watch this. Go and get the potter's earthen flask. This was a kind of flask. The reason we know this is because it's a certain Hebrew word here. I can't pronounce the word. It's like bakbak. And it's sort of a round pitcher, and then it gets real slender in the neck and kind of comes over, and then it has a handle on it, and it was made to pour water. That's the piece of pottery he's talking about here. And take some of the elders of the people and some of the elders of the priests and go out to the valley of the son of Hinnom. You know what they're talking about here, right? This is a valley that's south of Jerusalem. It's called Gehenna. You ever heard of Gehenna? It's actually a little valley. It's very, very close to the city or the walled city. And Gehenna is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Gehinnom, which means valley of the sons of Hinnom. Here's where some of the ancient Israels, uh, including the kings, passed children through the fire. That's a way of saying they sacrificed their kids in that valley. Some of even the kings, and they sacrificed to the Canaanite, Canaanite god Molech. That's in Second Chronicles 28 and 33, and in Jeremiah 7, and here maybe in Jeremiah 19. Now, the place is called Tophet in Isaiah 30, and here, or anyway, Tophet like, means fiery or a fire pit. And what... Jesus used Gehenna as an illustration of, is Jesus used it as an illustration of hell. That's this valley. That's what we're talking about right here. 
So watch this. So he takes some of the elders of the people and some of the elders of the priests. Remember, Jeremiah is from the priestly families. And he goes out to the valley of the son of Hinnom, this place which is by the entry of the potsherd gate, and proclaims there the words that I will tell, or proclaim there the words, and say, Hear the word of the Lord, O kings of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will bring such a catastrophe on this place that whoever hears it, his ears will tingle. And in, in other words, by the way, they're going to be in fear. This, when they hear this, this is going to be very fearful. Why? Because they have forsaken me. That's number one. And they've made this an alien place. Number two. Because they have burned incense in it to other gods. I think I'm on three. Whom they, <laughs> neither they nor their father nor their kings of Judah have known. And they have filled this place with the blood of the innocents. Burned up their children. They have also built, that's four, I think, they built high places to Baal to burn their sons with fire for burnt offerings, which I didn't command or speak, nor did it come into my mind. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that this place shall no more be called a fire pit or tophet or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but it's going to be called the valley of slaughter. The valley of slaughter. And I will make void the counsel of Judah and Jerusalem in this place, and I will cause them to fall by the sword before their enemies, and by the hands of those who seek their lives, their corpses. I will give as meat for the birds of the heaven and for the beasts of the earth. I will make this city desolate and a hissing. Everyone who passes by it is going to be absolutely astonished. I put absolutely. And hiss because of all its plagues. Verse 9, and I will cause them to eat the flesh of their sons and flesh of their daughters, and everyone shall eat the flesh of his friend in the siege and in the desperation with which their enemies and those who seek their lives shall drive them to despair. Some people might read this and say, God, what are you doing? And you missed the whole point of the chapter. See, you might have read chapter 18 and said, my goodness, is that heavy-handed. But God always acts according to all of his nature. God, when he's acting here in Jeremiah 18 and 19, is not only acting with his sovereignty, but he's also acting according to perfect justice. Who here in this room would find out that the national government was sanctioning the sacrifice of kids wouldn't stand up and say, that nation deserves it. <laughs> and so, look, you might, it's really interesting that God gives you chapter 18 before he gives you chapter 19. Because in chapter 18, you're like, well, come on, Lord. Pretty rough. Chapter 19, he says, this, 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 this. I've told you what would happen. And it's going to happen. Look at verse 10. Then you shall break the flask in the sight of the men. This is the drama. Break the flask in the sight of the men who go with you and say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts. See, in the ancient times, kings and generals would often, as they went off to war, would smash 
a jar, and what they would be saying was, we're going to defeat totally them. How about this? Turn over to, real quick, to Psalm 2, verse 9. This should add some depth to this messianic psalm. Oh, well, let's start in verse 8. The Messiah sort of speaking here, Ask of me and I will give you, verse 8, the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. Look at verse 9. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. And that's what they do here. They break the flask in the sight of the men who go with them. Now think about it. If you're the men who are going with him, you ain't happy with Jeremiah. Are you getting it? He's not bringing friends with him. He's bringing people who he's prophesying against. And he breaks the flask. And the Lord says, even so, I'm going to break this people and this city as one breaks a potter's vessel, uh, uh, vessel which cannot be made whole again. And they shall bury them in Tophet till there is no place to bury. In other words, your city's beyond any discipline that I could ever give or chastening. This city, this country is beyond any prayer. Remember that. He Remember, he asked him not to pray anymore for Jerusalem. It's beyond it. Thus, I will do to this place, says the Lord, and to its inhabitants, and make this city like Tophet, and the houses of Jerusalem and the houses of the kings of Judah shall be defiled like the place of Tophet, because of all the houses on whose roofs they have burned incense. Did you catch that? The families were now burning incense to other gods and poured out drink offerings to other gods. And then Jeremiah came from Tophet, where the Lord had sent him to prophesy. And look, watch this. And he stood in the court of the Lord's house. He went back to the temple, people. I mean, here, who, who here likes conflict? I hate conflict. I'm in it all the time. I'm like, Lord, get me out of it. I don't want to be in it. This guy, conflict, 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 conflict. Oh, Lord, I just threw the flask on the ground. Can I go home and watch the pirates, please? Well, that'd be distressful. How about the, you know, somebody else? But can I just relax for a little bit? Can I just, no, no, I want you to actually now go to the court of the temple again. And here's what I want you to say. And say to all the people, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will bring on this city and on all her towns all the doom that I have pronounced against it. Because watch, watch this. They have stiffened their necks that they may not hear my words. I want you to see something. When the clay becomes hard and brittle, it's over. Watch. But as long as it's on the wheel, it has a chance. <laughs> because he can still sprinkle the water, he can push it, you know, wreck it again, and, but reform it. But if you've gone past a certain spot, it's over. Do you know the Bible says... That there comes a time where God won't strive with man anymore. First John 5.16 says there is actually a sin unto death, folks. 
They've stiffened their necks that they might not hear my words. The potter and the clay. He has brought us tonight face to face. And he does for anybody who reads chapter 18. He brings you face to face with his sovereignty. People debate this, folks. Since Jesus has died and rose again, they've been debating it since that day. Is God sovereign over our lives or do we have free will? And the answer to that is yes. He is sovereign. He is in control. And how dare me or we or us or anyone say to him how my life should be? Because we know this. He's building something great into us. Just turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1. Go to chapter, 2 Peter chapter 1. Look in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation with the comfort. Wait a minute. It's 1 Corinthians. <laughs> Am I in Corinthians? Yeah, I'm in Corinthians. I'm not in Peter. Oh, my goodness. I'm like, what? That ain't it. Sorry. Grace and peace be multiplied you. I'm reading in verse 2. In the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue. Verse 4. By which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that's in the world through lust. Those scriptures are unbelievably staggering, but watch this. But also for this very reason, give all diligence... Add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now watch, now watch, and we'll close. God is building into your life, folks. And you and I and we want to get off the kiln, have the firing process be over so we can go on. But watch. It's great to be on the potter's wheel. You think it's just going round and round and what a boring life and what do I have? But God's doing something. And he's fashioning and forming you to be more in the image of his son. And then here's the kicker. As you're on the wheel and you're being fashioned, what does the potter, how does the potter make contact with you? With your hands. And you say, oh, I don't really like sovereignty. It just sounds so severe. Well, all you have to do is look at the hands of the potter. And there's scars in them. 
He's saying, I love you. And I'm fashioning you with these hands that have gone through everything for you. It's only for your best. So when you're tempted to reject God's sovereignty, and oh, by the way, you never, none of us in this room reject God's sovereignty very often. Do you know how I know that? Because you pray. And you would only pray if you thought he could do anything, and that's his sovereignty. <laughs> but the next time you're tempted to be mad about, like these folks were, or to stiffen up your necks, or to forget about God, all you have to do is just look at the hands that are fashioning you. And you'll start to understand. Let's pray. Well, Lord, thanks so much. Thankful that we get to dive into your sovereignty and your providence and your love and your justice and to study and think on your attributes. And Lord, as we move out this week and go forward, there are going to be people who think we're aliens and upside down, make fun of us, shoot the messenger. Lord, give us your power and strength by your spirit, by filling us up once again so that we could move forward and love people who are unlovable, to share with people who don't deserve it, to provide for people who hate us. Lord, we're going to need your strength and your power living in and through us to do it. Help us in these ways. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.